Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you as you get into shape for the big tournament next week. Yeah, tournament is right. Uh, tournament of fundraising. March Madness, as we call it, Mr. Honline. And the rest of the year. What is that in the background? You have a phone that's... Uh... You have a phone that's going off, a doorbell that's not working, a smoke alarm that's flo- that's low on battery. What's happening? We were wondering. It ain't here. We were. It's not over there. Nope. I wonder if it's here, and I don't realize it. Hmm. We could spend the next half hour on this topic. Hey, you know, uh, you know how I alarms going off all over the world, but not here. Yeah, a lot of alarms going off all over the world. Uh, you know, as I'm reading these articles about the BDS movement and how it's continuing to escalate in places like England and other areas of Europe, and obviously we know what's doing as we discuss it each week in other areas as well. You know, it's interesting, I, um, and you may have heard this already, this term, but one of the um, members of the Israeli government this week, and here's how you know the BDS is really making it as a movement, because one of the members of government this week in Israel referred to them as the BDS Nikim. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I heard, I heard it on an Israeli newscast. On an Israeli news, and I said, boy, oh boy, if they're now known as BDS Nikim, they've come a long way. This is a really serious movement. And it's it's also funny because as I'm reading the article today, and I'm sure you, you, you know what I'm referring to in terms of the uh, European activity of, um, regarding BDS, somehow, and, and, and you must get the same feeling, somehow it must indicate to you that we, we are making amazing progress if the opposition if the propaganda from the other side is as strong as it is. You know what I mean by that? I do, and I do think that it's, uh, BDS is an act of desperation on their part, where they are trying to mobilize public opinion uh, against Israel. But one must remember that BDS at its core is anti-Semitism, that it's discriminatory uh, uh, and focus on one country, setting a standard they set for no other. It's not even a higher standard. It's a triple standard. It's uh, making demands of Israel and, and lying, distorting, misrepresenting, and trying to use economic and other leverage, political leverage. But the economic impact is very minimal. It doesn't really make a difference in Israel's GDP, gross domestic product. What, what, uh, it's a growth rate of its economy every year, but it does have a political and psychological impact, and it becomes a rallying call on campuses where you have groups like the Students for Justice in Palestine, others who receive funding from foreign sources, who get all sorts of assistance, according to reports, um, and have uh, mobilized behind this uh, campaign. But it's essentially the delegitimization of Israel. That's the goal. It's not the, the uh, fact that they will boycott a particular or try to target particular businesses. Uh, you see that in Europe there's already a backlash where the Paris City Council adopted a resolution, and the, the government of England has imposed strict rules against companies engaging in a boycott of Israel. The president signed legislation passed by Congress, uh, and although there was, it was, his statement at the time was controversial, where he seems to uh, separate the, what the legislation says about including the Judean Samaria from being protected, but it uh, passed overwhelmingly in the Congress, so there is a backlash. We see it on campuses. Uh, around the country where there, uh, there's increased mobilization, increased focus. But BDS is, is, uh, is the symptom. BDS is not the disease. And, it, you know, it's important, and we have to focus on it, 
but we have to look at what is at the core of it, what is really motivating these people to, to engage in this campaign. And so they try to use economic warfare just as they use military warfare and political warfare against, uh, against Israel, isolated, trying to isolate it, when in fact you see that Israel is being approached by more and more countries and the yeah. attempts to isolate it are certainly not working. When, when Arab workers speak out and go to the press to express... Uh, how uh, unfortunate it is that certain Israeli companies either had to move or you know were encouraged to close down or adjust things because of you know, uh, it, 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 you, you, you know what I'm referring to the SodaStream yep. soda case when they when they go to the press are they then vilified by their community are they are they criticized by their neighbors because they went and expressed how much they want these Israeli companies to continue operating so they could have jobs. There are extreme elements who criticize the people who work in uh, settlements or in West Bank uh, businesses, uh, that, but there are uh, probably 20,000 Palestinians or more who work directly, and total maybe 200,000 who are involved in supply, support, secondary, tertiary, impact families from those who work in, in these areas, and they are the victims of BDS, the first and foremost victims, because when these businesses closed down, like SodaStream moved its factory, uh, the Israelis can work in the, in the new place. The Palestinians who were getting work permits, and I think it's a little unfair, the criticism of the government that they, because I was involved in discussions between them while I was in Israel, uh, over these 74 workers who were given uh, repeated extensions uh, by the government to enable them to continue working, but they want people in the Negev, Druze, Arabs, Israelis, to be hired, uh, and that was part of the... Uh, agreement in the, in the rebuilding of the facility, uh, the, the SodaStream was very committed to having uh, multi, uh, a workforce that was representative of all the populations. And I can tell you that a, a mayor of a big uh, Arab town in, in uh, called me uh, in the PA area, and he started screaming to me, at me about BDS and said, you have to stop it, you have to stop it. I said, <laughs> you stop it. You have more of a say. If you come out and say it, we constantly are fighting it. And he said, you don't understand. I have 200 people who work at SodaStream. They make $2,000 a month or more, and equivalent to what the Israelis make. And he said, they will come back here. They lose their health care. They lose everything. And if they're lucky, if they make $200 a month, they'll turn to terrorism, and we will pay the price. And, and people don't think so. The, the, the people who are engaging this are not doing it because they want to improve the, pa- the, the uh, plight of Palestinians and under the guise that they, they operate. This is purely anti-Israel, and it is core anti-Semitic. Yeah. Uh, did you notice the uh, most recent poll about American support for Israel? With all this, with the BDS and everything we're discussing the first few minutes here, you notice the numbers this week in terms of American support for Israel? I did, and I think it's a, a, a very important, um, it's a, it's, but it's one of a series of studies that have come out. I think that one showed uh, well over 50% with Israel and under 20% with the Palestinians. And this, um, uh, despite all the campaigns and everything, um, I think 62% uh, uh, were more pro-Israel and 15% uh, uh, were pro-Palestinian. And even amongst Democrats, whereas 10 years ago it was 41%, today it's 53%. And among young, it was 50% um, then, and now it's 54%. So while we do have big challenges and we can't take for granted, and there is 
a growing apathy. There's a general indifference to international affairs, including to Israel. The bottom line is that Israel retains the support of the American people, and that's why I say it's not dependent upon you know, individuals and the chemistry of individuals. It, it, while that's always important, it's not dependent uh, just on how the media treats Israel, because the American people fundamentally see through it, and they support Israel because of the fundamental values we share, the interests we share, and it is, it is a quite remarkable, given the hostile press that you know, we've seen grow over the, and especially in the mainstream press, you know, over the last uh, 10 years. If similar questions are asked in Europe and uh, asked to the same groups that you just mentioned, uh, you know, youth, etc., where are those numbers? Around where? You just gave us great numbers in terms of U.S. support. How much, how, how much further down, how much closer to zero would it be if, uh, if we're in France or in England and doing the same type of poll? Well, in Great Britain, it's more pro-Arab uh, than pro-Palestinian than it is pro-Israel. Uh, and the numbers are probably in the 40s. Oh, I was thinking 30s, lower. so it's still in and the 40s. maybe lower. It depends. Uh, so, you know, each country is different. There are countries where the pro-Israel numbers are even lower than, than that, and less than a third. But, the, uh, but remember, they're, they're subjected to, to all one-sided, uh, nasty reports, and the... Um, you know the the changing situation in Europe. I think will result in in a realization about uh, the realization that Israel is the source of stability, not instability. And it may take time, but but I met with a group of European parliamentarians, and I have to say that uh, their views were as good as the members of Congress on on the issue. It, again, the vocal forces are are the ones that get the coverage and that uh, are portrayed, but. The, um, and, and it's not comparable to America, but I have to tell you that we see in places in, in Africa and other places where the numbers of pro-Israel are going up. It's slow, it's small, but it's, it's changing, and mostly amongst the governments. Uh, Boeing has been invited to talks with Iranian officials about modernizing Iran's aged commercial aircraft fleet, the country's transport minister said Thursday, and what could be a precursor the biggest business arrangement with an American company after more than three decades of estrangement. Now, last week we discussed how, um, you know, originally we thought there would be a lot of economic activity and a lot of business opportunities with Iran once the deal was a, was solidified. Uh, we discussed last week that things were not going as quickly as, uh, as some may have thought. What are your thoughts about that topic now that you see about, now that you see that Boeing will meet with Iranian officials? Everybody's meeting with uh, Iranian officials, but you have to look at the, the how the banks have shied away because they understand the restrictions, the warnings they got that a violation by Iran would reimpose sanctions. Their fear that uh, Iran does not have full access to SWIFT and to the uh, international uh, currency markets, etc. So the uh, it's, I think it's been much slower than a lot of them believe. Also, the influx of money, much of this money was, uh, a lot of it was designated for debt money owed in those countries and for future purchases in those countries. Uh, some of the money is still frozen. Uh, it doesn't move as quickly as we thought. It's enough to make a difference. They claim that they got $100 billion. I think that that is a very dubious figure. Uh, but, the, but terrorism requires very small amounts of money. And the money doesn't go to the people. The money obviously goes to the hierarchy, the, uh, and the Ayatollah and the Iran Revolutionary Guard control 45% of the economy, so you can be sure the contracts that are coming in are gone to them first. The people complain, and, and in the election you saw that, 
that the that the benefits, the economic benefits, the windfall that they had thought would come, they don't see any sign of it, and they're putting more pressure on the government uh, for that, that 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 they supported the JCPOA because they thought it would bring uh, all sorts of um, of relief. Relief, and and by the way, the the other countries too. Turkey is looking to profit from it, but all of a sudden they're seeing that they can't cash in in the way that they thought. The uh, and Iran has many commitments in in its uh, in Syria, for instance. Even though they've diminished their their immediate presence, but they still support Hezbollah. They still have IRGC there, I believe, and the, the support for Hamas, the support for others, uh, other terrorist operations worldwide, uh, is a drain on the economy and not something that people. Uh, support. They also are fa- facing the fight, the internal fight against PKK, against others, YPGs. They call, and against the, and in Syria. So, I think that for if you take country by country, you will see that the benefits may be more limited. They're talking about massive uh, arms deals with Russia, twenty billion dollars, ten billion dollars. We don't know what the real numbers are because a lot of this is, is propaganda. A lot of it is just um, being thrown out. Not, may not materialize just as you see the delivery of the S three hundred still hasn't materialized the the defense system that has been sold to Iran three four five times already. Uh, has Saudi Arabia essentially, at least uh, the way the New York Times is reporting it, have they basically given up Lebanon to Iran at this point? Well, they pulled out of the support from the Lebanese army, uh, which was a, a couple billion dollars, and to the security about a billion dollars a year. In part, it's anger at Lebanon. It's anger about the internal situation where they're backing uh, away from moderate candidates and ones that Saudi Arabia back, but also because in the Arab League meetings, Lebanon did not back uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, this has been a cumulative uh, uh, res- a response to cumulative violations in their relationship and the fear that also when you aid the Lebanese army, you're aiding Hezbollah, which is fighting Saudi's interests in Syria and many other places, especially Yemen. And uh, so I think it's a reflection of all of those concerns. What this will mean for the Lebanese army is unclear because it was a major source of their support. Wow. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. We welcome those who tuned in around the world. Remind you to everybody, we need your support starting next week for our big JMNAM WFMU fundraiser to keep us going for yet another year. The 2016 fundraiser starts Monday. Make sure to join us and at some point pledge your support and make this a very successful venture for us and for you, for everybody. If you like segments like the one we're doing now, uh, we have to make sure to keep this radio station going as uh, strongly as possible. Uh, We spoke about the Iranian elections last week. What could you tell us about the results? Well, uh, you remember that uh, I described what the process leading up to it, where they eliminated the vast majority of the real moderate candidates. Right. they often had to shift people who would normally be described as very conservative, very uh, non-moderate, um, to the list because they had to fill the list. For instance, in, in, in uh, Tehran, you, you have 30 candidates, so you have to have a list of 30 people for them to vote for. And they have to write each name in by hand, by the way, so it can take a long time till they, till they uh, cast their ballots. 
but it is clear, so clear that there was an expression on the part of the people that they wanted to, they voted as moderate as they could. You had big areas in the rural areas where people didn't vote. That was a protest also, in part against the fact that the economic conditions and that they didn't see any of the money coming. It's a, it was a vote against the, the regime, the, the more extremes in the regime. But they will retain control. The election of uh, the Iran Assembly of Experts, for instance, it's a body that will determine and is significant because the next Ayatollah is chosen by them. There are uh, 86 or so members uh, of this body. It's a clerical body. And uh, so some of the conservative figures were removed and a few reformers got in, but it's not going to make a difference. First of all, it hasn't met since 1989. Wow. That's the only time. And that was to choose the Supreme Leader, leader Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, after Khamenei's death, to choose uh, Khamenei. And, uh, and it was essentially a rubber stamp. The decisions were made uh, uh, outside, and uh, many people feel that the Japoa has, has empowered the Iran Revolutionary Guard more, and that they will get a lot of the uh, assets, and that will go into the next leadership fight, which is already underway. The elections in the parliament, again, many of those described as uh, as moderates are hardly that. We see people who have been accused of murder uh, being elected. You have, uh, I don't think you can anticipate any major shift in um, in policy, but where it could play out is in two years you have a presidential election uh, coming up, and there it could make a. This could be a precursor for uh, what could happen there. Yeah. But this is not, you know, the way that a lot of the people have been uh, describing it. Um, there is a, a sense of Iranian nationalism, according to many observers, that is was enhanced by the deal, and this is essentially favorable to the to the Iranian leadership and uh, that they got the upper hand in the dealings in the West, and that they, this will maybe empower an even more persistent anti-Western uh, outlook. But, you know, it's funny, because as I read more and more about the chicanery, about the um, fraudulent stuff that's going on with the Iranian election, and I mean, you've seen that also, right? Plenty of accusations sure. about fraud. I say to myself, why on earth <laughs> did they have to whittle down <laughs> the list of candidates if they're just going to fraudulently, you know, go through the election anyway? Like, what's the difference who ends up being on the ballot? Why spend all that time getting rid of the quote-unquote moderates? Or are they just making a statement to the country by getting rid of some of those? Well, I think it's both. I think it is a statement, as you said, but I think it's much more than that. I think it is if, if many of those moderates had been allowed, the true moderates had been allowed to run, they would have been elected, and in many of the areas, uh, the protest against their elimination uh, was expressed by not voting, and in uh, other places, they voted for the most uh, moderate person they could find on the list. It wasn't easy uh, to find them, but they, that, that uh, was, in fact, what they were, uh, the expression on the part of the people. Right. So it does make a difference. And many people just threw up their hands and said, listen, if they eliminate everybody we would want to vote for, what's the point? So it it, it re-enhances their their role, and uh, you know, people the people of Iran have to make decisions about how how they respond to it. Uh, is there really a ceasefire in Syria? There is something, and uh, whether the Russians are continuing to bomb, we know, and the fight against ISIS continues, but there has been some. And the question is whether whether it will. Um, 
how it will be upheld. It's a, it is still to be tested. Um, you see that the, the uh, ISIS is continuing. They, they executed eight Dutch uh, fighters who were trying to leave. Um, interesting reports about whether the chief of military intelligence was killed in Lebanon. The Russian chief of military intelligence, who they say died of a heart attack in Moscow. Now there are reports he died really in Lebanon and that there are broader hostilities. But the um, I think the agreement so far, it doesn't cover an op- the operations against uh, both IS and uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. So under that guise, you can continue to fight. The, the Turks can continue to bomb and claim it's ISIS, but in fact, we believe they're going after the Kurdish, uh, uh, they say PKK and other Kurdish elements. Uh, it, it is a test, and we'll have to see how it plays out. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of people have a vested interest wanting to see the, the violence uh, come down. The Russians are a key in this to see how they will comply. Including Israel? Israel would rather this be happening than the alternative? Israel wants stability. I mean, there is a big difference. You know, when we were in in Egypt, clearly uh, Sisi wants to see um, uh, Assad stay because he thinks that that will provide some stability, that a breakdown will just further enhance the chaos and the terrorism and everything else that will emanate from, from uh, Syria. The Turks, uh, Erdogan wants to see him out and wants to see some sort of, uh, you know, some change. He hates them and they... Um, and he doesn't see any benefit in, in retaining it. And within the country, there are really massive differences. There's talk of uh, interim and let him stay for a little while to find somebody else in the interim, have elections. There's talk of elections in April, which many others dismiss as ridiculous, that the country is certainly not prepared and not ready to go to an election. <clears throat> so this is only a phase, and we're going to see a lot, of, a lot more violence and a lot more chaos before there's a solution. Why is there so much concern in the media, and it seems more than usual, about who's going to take over eventually from Ahmoud Abbas? Because the question is, does it enshrine the Iran-Russian uh, Hezbollah role, does it, who are now the dominant force, obviously, in, in retaining Assad in, in the key areas of Aleppo and Damascus, uh, or do you have a real opportunity to, to have some sort of a true uh, election, more open, and does the country end up being a confederation? Does it end up being cantons, you know, where everybody just struggles? The Kurds have an area, the Alawites will have an area, that, that everybody will, will that, be divided up. That's on the future of Assad. Pardon me, it's on the future of, of Syria. Yeah, I, I asked you, um, there seems to be a great interest this week in the media about who's going to take over for Mahmoud Abbas as head of the PA. And I was wondering if that was, uh... oh boy. It sounds like we had a little bit of a disconnect, a little miscommunication in more, in more ways than one. Uh, we will try to reconnect with Malcolm Honline, and uh, hopefully he'll join us in just a moment here at JM in the AM. Let's go to one of our selections from Yitzhak Fuchs, and we'll do more coming up at JM in the AM. יום שבתון יום מחמדים שומרה וזוכב הם המעידים כי לשיש הכל ברויים ועומדים שמי שמיים ארץ וימים 
JM in the AM, it looks like we've reconnected with Malcolm Honline. He's Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I apologize. I don't know whose end it was on, but I that was pretty interesting. Um, welcome back, Malcolm. Thank you. So the media, it seems, this week has taken uh, a special interest in who eventually will take over as the head of the PA after Mahmoud Abbas. Any special reason why now there's so much interest in that topic? Because a lot of the speculations coming from within the PA, from within the, the Palestinian Authority, because of Abbas's age and people's noticing that he is slowing down, that he is not the same, and that he still resists any real negotiations, that um, uh, the frustration of the other Arab countries being expressed to them about their uh, failure to be responsive and to uh, deal with the kleptocracy, the stealing, the theft, and moving the situation ahead. And because you've had people now starting to talk out about it, I mean, he, he's 80 years old, and you know he talks about stepping down, and at some point, you know, either nature or he or something will decide, and so they're looking at it, and there's no natural successor. He did not want one. He doesn't have one. And, you know, there's talk that Khan is now reemerging uh, as a potential candidate. There are people, others, Saibarak uh, had others that people speculate about, but there's no clear successor. So it, it becomes, uh, you know, a guessing game right now. I really wonder what Israel would prefer at this point, you know, and I guess it depends who's... I mean, well, there's a lot of concern in Israel that the PA will collapse because then the burden falls on Israel because they are legally in charge. Um, they would have to carry the burden for the for the uh, Palestinian uh, Authority, uh, and um, and more than that, Israel um, is concerned about the succession. They don't want to see somebody more radical, or uh, they want to see stability to the degree that it's possible. And a breakdown of the law and uh, uh, and and any kind of security cooperation would be very bad. And as bad as the PA is in some areas, in the security areas, the fact is that they still cooperate, and there is more coordination than might appear. Yeah, you've always told us that, and uh, I mean, we've seen the evidence. You, know, you travel right. through you travel through Israel. You see the deli- <laughs> deliveries of different essentials going on, and a lot of cooperation. Obviously, there's some security cooperation also. I don't know if that should be overplayed or not, but there's certainly um, uh, some cooperation when it comes to that. What, what do we learn from the fact that the cameras are being discouraged from being placed on the Temple Mount? Well, they're not being discouraged. It's about putting them near the mosques. This was originally an idea that the, the Jordanians and uh, Secretary Kerry and others came up this was supposed to put the lie to the charges, you know, that Al-Aqsa is under siege, Al-Aqsa is under fire, which has been Abbas's rallying call, and which is a very, very dangerous thing. And I, as we told both President Sisi and, and President Erdogan, that that charge can ignite, ignite and change a political battle or even a territorial uh, dispute into a religious war, which will engulf the whole region. Right. There's nothing that brings people to the streets more. There's nothing that will excite it and bind uh, which uh, extremist elements uh, will rally and exploit. So the cameras were to be put up, A, they say to monitor, you know, what the Israelis are doing, but it's really to monitor what they're doing, and they don't want it. The Palestinians don't want it because they don't want the truth to get out. They don't want people to see. They don't want to see who desecrated the Temple Mount, that it wasn't Israel, it was they. and It was they who broke through and who did uh, all sorts of things there, uh, you know, excavating hundreds of tons uh, illegally. And uh, I met with archaeologists who claimed that it's still ongoing acti- there is still ongoing activity there. 
but it seems the compromise is that uh, they won't put the cameras in the mosques and maybe not focused on the mosque, but focused on the public areas. It would be important to have it, but, um, you know, it's not going to change the fundamental situation. Are you glad to see that uh, many of the presidential candidates are now recognizing how Libya is, in fact, an ISIS stronghold at this point? Well, you know, you heard it here first. That's on this right. Show. That's right. That's <laughs> Before right. Before anybody won, and when there were a thousand ISIS, now there are five thousand. And now they act as if uh, you know it's obvious when they when, right. when they address and the that's, crowd. That's part of what, as you know, drives me crazy because I told you before. But you know, when it came to Yemen, when it came to all these circumstances, the really sad and tragic part is that it was all predictable, including Syria. And had we taken preemptive action, had they listened, had they um, acted then we would have avoided a lot of what we're dealing with now. And what we're facing again here, like we have the war in Yemen, that when there were a thousand or less of the ISIS in Sert, which is right on the coast of the Mediterranean, on the, border, uh, on the coastal border of Libya, will become a, a base of, of t- piracy. It will enable them to travel to Europe. It's 300 miles from Sarah to, to Crete, which is the, the outermost part of Europe, you know, the islands, uh, the Greek islands. And it, it, it threatens Egypt. CC, President Sisi spoke to us extensively about the, the growth and his frustration that the, you know, NATO and the West didn't react and still doesn't react. We see al-Qaeda again reforming in, in Libya. And he warned, he said, Libya will become the next Syria. They will go the same direction. And the absence of the West and, you know, debates, I guess, about Benghazi makes everybody gun-shy, but it can't, you can't ignore it. It's not a country. It's 147 tribes. It is a, a, a horrible political situation, a security situation, but we can't ignore it. And if, if, the, if we had taken action early on in Sarat, we wouldn't be facing 5,000 guys, which makes it a much bigger enterprise in order to counter them. I read somewhere this week that the detainees are becoming a problem. There's so many ISIS detainees at this point. That's becoming a problem. It's a problem in some countries, and it uh, you know they they have to release some of them. It's a it's keeping the costs, and it's uh, uh, you know keeping them in contained, and also they become organizational bases that they train. They you know we strengthen the infrastructure by having them all contained in these areas. Obviously, we have to arrest them and and try to isolate them. Yeah, what's funny is I didn't realize there was any success in getting any of them. Like, I didn't realize that... Uh... Well, I don't think the numbers are quite as big as that some people are trying to make it, but yes, they, they capture some, they kill a lot, and, uh, you know, it depends on which party it is. I know that some of the countries fighting there have told us that they take no prisoners, because they know that these ISIS guys will come back eventually to their home countries, carrying passports as they are citizens, and and will wreak havoc, and they you know make sure they meet their virgins, as one leader told me. Yeah. Uh, finally, the uh, poet in Iran who was blacklisted because of his lifestyle has uh, seeked asylum in Israel. Uh, what does it say about uh, about Israel being basically the only beacon of democracy in the Middle East and the only place anybody who's uh, at this point who's feeling persecuted can go to? It's um, it's just a, a very important reminder. It, it, you know, it, it shows that Israel is the only beacon of democracy in the region, and and that it, and he's not the only one. Uh, I've met others who, who talk about wanting to get to Israel. Um, I mean, when we saw we saw things uh, both ways. One, we saw that Egyptian 
uh, MP, member of parliament, who got expelled because he met with the Israeli ambassador, although they say that it's not because of that, it's because of his errant behavior. This is one, one, just one example. Uh, but on the other hand, that we saw the Gulf states designating Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, uh, and they imposed the uh, they had earlier imposed the, the Gulf Council Cooperation Council had imposed sanctions on them, but here they they designate them a terrorist organization, which makes Hezbollah crazy in the, in their response to it. And the uh, uh, the, the uh, there were other changes that we we saw over the the period that the. Um, uh, about the uh, what's going on at West Bank, what's going on recruitment, what's going on on the borders, and the by the way, uh, question you asked me, I think you saw the answer that I, I uh, mentioned about the development of of uh, technology to deal with the tunnels from uh, Gaza into into Israel, and that they were successful in knocking out some. And there's a, a bill in the Knesset that's going to allocate money matched by the United States to develop further technologies. But clearly, they have something, and that's of uh, course save that that will end up saving a lot of IDF soldiers' lives. Absolutely, and and you know it's very high risk because if God forbid somebody is kidnapped, they have to go into these areas where yeah. they don't know. And I hope that the visit of uh, Vice President Biden will advance the negotiations on the Memo of Understanding, the ten year next ten years of aid. Um, agreement between the United States and Israel. Why does it seem like that's an issue every couple of years? It's only every 10 years? It's every 10 years, but the negotiations takes about two years before the 10 years mm-hmm. start in 2017. But I think it would be much better if they make a deal now. Some people say you should wait to the next president. I don't believe that that's smart. I think it's it, you got to lock it in, get the deal. There's a new president until they get organized, till everything is in place, till Congress is ready to move. To say, take, he, uh, say he goes to Israel time. to negotiate that? I said, I, I hope that that will be the issue, and, uh, you know, he is friend, and he, he has a good relationship. With You're him. encouraging him to make that the issue. I, I am hopeful that that will be the issue, to that it will be able to be resolved, that we will be able to advance it so that the deal, I mean, there are, are ongoing negotiations. Right, my, qu- my, qu- my question was, is that why he's going? That was my question. That's a better question. That's a good question, and I don't know that that is the sole purpose uh, he hasn't been there in a while, and uh, he feels very close to Israel. So I think this is, you know, a combination of things. Uh, but I hope that uh, he's there to try and advance the MOU. I think negotiations toward two two state solution, if that's the agenda, is not going to go very far. They may talk about some specific steps that can be taken and cooperation between the United States and Israel in addressing some of the security issues in the region. Uh, I think would be also very important. Um. You're a political scientist. What does one do when they're endorsed by David Duke? You don't wait three minutes to disavow it. Uh, and, and and any races, any bigot, anybody, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, when you delay and all of that, it becomes then a subject of controversy and discussion. Uh, political leaders have to make clear statements about, uh, about groups like that. Right. Well, we're getting closer and closer to the election. We're now in March. And everything becomes then a subject of debate and, and yeah. uh, often hostility this, this time. Uh, but it's, it's, we, we can't have any obfuscation about whether what Duke is, what the Klan is, what any of these groups. We have to show that I mean, the American public isolates them, and that's all the candidates. And they should disavow any racist or bigoted uh, people who back them so that it's clear that they will not have an influence, they will not have a role, and that they 
you know, that these are abhorrent views, as mm-hmm. I think all the candidates have stated. I thought you were going to say, as, as all the candidates have demonstrated, <laughs> that, they, that they all have abhorrent views. Some, some of them have abhorrent styles, and we've seen things that we've never seen before. But, hey, America's going for it. So, you know, I would bet the debate ratings of the last couple of debates have been through the roof, I would assume. But It is amazing in that the new voters have come out of many other things. But at the same time, we're not seeing the kind of substantive debate oh, not even core close. issues at a time when America needs to see it, and probably once we get down to two candidates, they will focus I more hope. on the issues and less on personalities. Yeah, I hope you're right. I don't know. Right. Next week, Fundraising Marathon 2016. We will speak with you, uh, Bezrat Hashem, then. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thank Good you for joining Shabbos. us. So Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update. I don't know what happened there in the middle. Got disconnected, but I apologize for that, and I'm glad we were able to reconnect. Ken-